On May 29, 1875, Harper's Weekly started an article as follows. Quote, For three days, the vessel had been enveloped in so dense a fog that it was impossible to take an observation. And Captain Thomas, ignorant of his position, but aware that he might be in dangerous proximity to the coast, had ordered the engines to be run at half speed. This was at nine o'clock on the evening of May 7th. No light was visible to the vigilant and anxious watch. No warning bell was heard. The first intimation of danger came too late to avert the calamity. End quote. Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the story, The Schiller is Lost in the Fog? Here we are. Enjoy! The Schiller was called one of the finest American liners afloat. The 3,490-ton German registered ship was an iron-screw steamer, built on the Clyde and launched in 1873. She was a ship that her owners, the Hamburg American Line, could be proud of. She had a reputation for her fast voyages, boasted of seven watertight compartments for safety, and Lloyds had given her an A1 rating. This was enough to make people confident in booking their voyage on board the two-year-old ship under the command of the experienced Captain Thomas. In April 1875, the Schiller departed from Hamburg bound for New York on a routine voyage, and indeed the only thing that made the voyage stand out was that her departure from New York was delayed for a day due to tides not being in their favor. She, therefore, left New York on the 28th rather than the 27th. With 59 saloon passengers, 75 second-class passengers, 120 steerage passengers, and 101 crew members. In addition, she also was carrying general cargo, mail bound for Australia and New Zealand, and $300,000 of specie that she was supposed to land in Cherbourg, France. When the Schiller first hit the fog, Captain Thomas had no reason to slow his ship. They were still far enough from land that there was not likely to be any danger. It was only as thick fog had continued to prevent them from making an accurate determination of their exact location for three days, and he knew that they were getting close to land, that Captain Thomas ordered his ship slowed to half speed. Somewhere in the fog were the islands of the Sillies a well-known danger. The first stop that the Schiller was meant to make in Europe was supposed to be in Plymouth on the 8th of May, where 22 passengers were supposed to disembark. By Captain Thomas' calculations, they were now getting close to the English Channel. It would only be an hour after ordering their speed to be reduced at half, at 10 o'clock at night. The Schiller violently struck a reef, sending a shudder through the entire ship. She did not strike once or twice either. 
the people on board her said that she struck four times before finally settling on the reef with a sense of finality. The people on the Schiller were in a dangerous position. The seas were rough, the tide was coming in quickly, visibility was still low, and the ship was now positioned broadside to the strong waves that were hitting her. The immediate response of those on board was chaos and panic, and this was not restricted to the passengers. The behavior of those on board was not helped by the fact that one of the officers had celebrated his birthday earlier in the day on the ship, and many of the crew and passengers were still under the effects of alcohol. Captain Thomas had not left his position on the bridge of the ship for days, not since the fog had set in. And now he tried to take control of the situation, but as the only person trying to establish order, he was entirely disregarded. The crew took possession of the two most convenient ship's boats in spite of the captain's orders that they needed to save the passengers. On finding that appealing to their goodwill was failing, Captain Thomas fired over the heads of the sailors in the boats in the hopes of scaring them out of the boats. This too failed, and finally, he fired into the boats, though he still did not hit anyone and still did not convince them to leave their spots of perceived safety. The people who found refuge in the boats were soon swept out of them by the waves sweeping over the ship before they could launch them. None of the people in the boats would reach the shore. Right before the ship had hit the rocks, a saloon passenger named Henry Stern had gone forward to see if he could see the silly lights. The fog had him concerned especially since he took the ship traveling at half speed as a sign of Captain Thomas' concern as well. He could not see the lights, but he was still looking out over the bow when the ship hit the rocks. He and a couple of other men from first class who had gone to investigate the shock that had rocked the boat went back to the saloon deck to wake up the women and children who had mostly already retired for the night. Henry Stern and another man also went and got all of the life belts that they could find, and began to distribute them among the other passengers. The life belts proved to be of little use. The waves were pounding over the ship too violently, and anyone who did not hold onto anything tightly was quickly washed overboard and overwhelmed by the sea. About an hour after the ship had wrecked, Henry Stern gave up on the deck entirely and climbed up the mainmast to escape the washing waves at the encouragement of an American captain, though he could not remember his name. This also gave him a very good vantage point of the events that were to follow. At around midnight, the fog lifted, and Henry Stern was able to see the light of Bishop's Rock which he had been looking for right before the impact, clear ahead of them, and not very far. It was a testimony to how thick the fog had been around them that no one had known the danger they were in. The third officer dedicated himself to the task of hanging blue lights and firing rockets in the hope that they would be saved by people on shore, though this task was greatly impacted by the strong waves that kept hitting the ship. One boat that they were trying to launch was smashed to pieces on the side of the ship. Another boat was successfully launched, 
but the members of the crew in it refused to come back and take on any more passengers. Afraid of the boat being smashed by the waves or overfilled by the desperate people on the ship. One of the ship's lifeboats was also launched, this time through the efforts of 2nd Officer Polaman, but it was smashed by the waves. It kept afloat, but many of the people on her were washed out, and it was badly damaged. Among the number of those who held themselves in a boat in spite of the waves were Christiana Jones and her husband. They had both been in bed for the night when the ship had grounded on the rock, and both of them had rushed to the deck. On seeing the boats being launched, they jumped into the boat that was already being lowered before it could leave the ship. The experience had left Christiana Jones injured, and the couple found themselves in a boat with no oars and leaking so badly that it was full of water most of the time. No one else got in the boat. It was considered one of the ones too damaged to be of use by the time it hit the water. The couple drifted for two hours before the lifeboat that was launched by the second officer found them and brought them on board of the lifeboat. It still was not much of an improvement. The lifeboat was also considered in a sinking condition. The group got her to shore, helped by the boat with the sailors that had refused to come back to the ship. Between the two boats, 16 people were now safe out of the over 300 who had set sail on the Schiller. Most of the women and children had taken shelter in the deckhouse and had never had a chance to even attempt to escape the ship. At one in the morning, to the horror of Henry Stern, from his vantage point above, an extremely large wave struck the ship and carried away the deckhouse and everyone inside of it. None of them would escape. Christiana Jones would be the only woman to set foot on land again from the Schiller. Some other people took refuge on the bridge with Captain Thomas, but they were slowly picked off by the waves. Around two in the morning, Captain Thomas descended to the deck in the hopes of offering more assistance to passengers he saw hanging on there, but he was swept away. Every survivor testified that Captain Thomas was exhausted. He had spent days with hardly any sleep due to the fog, but when the accident had occurred, he had still done everything in his power to save lives, up until the very end. At three in the morning, the final blow came in the form of one of the ship's funnels falling. It smashed the only remaining boat that was on the ship. For Henry Stern and the approximately 30 other men who had joined him in the rigging of the ship, the only recourse was to wait to see what the morning would bring. Through the night, the men around Henry Stern grew more and more weak due to the wet and the cold. The men who had suggested to Henry Stern this place of safety had initially had words of encouragement for everyone, but over time got so weak he could no longer answer, even when someone spoke to him. No one could ignore the fact that the ship was slowly settling deeper and deeper into the water. It seemed inevitable that, eventually, the mast would also not offer any safety. That time came between five and six in the morning when the mast suddenly snapped without warning, and everyone who had been holding onto the rigging was either crushed under it or thrown into the water. Soon after, the foremast, which also had people clinging to it, broke off as well. 
In both cases, the masts were made out of iron and offered no shelter once in the water. In their weakened conditions, after a freezing night, most of the people who were thrown into the water did not have the energy to fight the waves. Henry Stern grabbed onto two floating beams and used them to keep him afloat, and he was washed closer and closer to the cliffs. He estimated a couple of hours later he saw a boat, and he called out for it. It turned out to be a boat from the island of St. Agnes, which was searching for survivors. He was pulled on board quickly, and found that he was in the company of two of the other men he had spent the night in the rigging with. Right before the masts fell, boats from St. Agnes and from St. Mary arrived on the scene, the people on the islands having realized the disaster that had taken place on their doorstep. Unfortunately, due to the heavy waves and the rocks that the Schiller had landed on, the boats were not able to come close enough to pull people from the ship without being destroyed, so they could only patrol the water around the ship, hoping to find people who were still alive in the water. The boats patrolled well into the afternoon, and sometimes their efforts were rewarded. One of them pulled a man from the water who had been floating while clinging to a piece of wood for ten hours. Over time, their efforts became more a matter of recovery than rescue, but they continued their grim task. People had also begun to wash ashore. With most of the passengers having been asleep when the ship wrecked, finding identifying papers and identifying who they had found became the new challenge. Four of the passengers who had been rescued were also not identified right away. They had been brought to shore unconscious, and it took some time to revive them to find out who they were. All the papers could say was that it was believed they were steerage passengers. All over the world, the news of the Schiller was telegraphed and caused distress and heartbreak, especially in New York, where the Schiller had departed and most of the people had friends and family who were hoping for word. The offices of the shipping company were quickly filled with people desperate for any sort of news. Matters were not helped when the initial news to reach New York said that only four men had been saved. Even after a following telegraph sent soon after, saying that rescue work was still underway, it was of little comfort after it was found out that only one woman and no children had been saved. Many of the people who flocked to the shipping office for news were inquiring about entire families. The Schiller's good reputation led to many families, as well as people of note from the city, to choose to travel on board of her for her final voyage. Even when the final count of those saved came, 45 in total, only 16 of them were passengers. No one could doubt any longer that the families who had waved goodbye as the ship had departed from New York, were gone. On St. Mary's Island, the funerals began, many of them with the knowledge that they would probably never be able to identify who lay in the grave, so the locals of the island took their places as the mourners. All of the shops were closed, so that everyone could be present as carts of every size were employed to carry the coffins. It was reported that every coffin was covered in flowers, and one coffin was surrounded by a group of the Order of Good Templars because of a card identifying the man who was brought to their shore as one of their members was found in his jacket. Even as this first round of funerals took place, 
It seemed as though every fishing vessel brought remains, in addition to their catch, every day. The survivors were well cared for by the people of the Sillies, and it was reported with some amazement by some of the papers who had long heard stories of wrecking taking place along the coasts of the world that there was not a single report of anything being taken from those washed ashore. Indeed, the notices that were published in the papers in the hopes of identifying remains often included valuables. A man was wearing a signet ring, and a young woman was wearing an impressively sized diamond. It could only be hoped that this would offer some closure to the families waiting for news. No blame was placed on the officers and crew who survived. It was found that the crew and officers who had survived had either been ordered to the boats by Captain Thomas in the hopes that they would be able to save passengers as well, or they had been clinging to the masts and were pulled from the water by the boats from the Sillies. The blame could also not be placed on the people of the Sillies. Yes, rockets had been fired into the night by the third officer after the wreck, and guns had also been sounded, but the people of the Sillies were all too used to this. It was, unfortunately, often a practice of passenger ships, to celebrate a completed crossing of the Atlantic with rocket and gunfire for the enjoyment of their passengers. There had been far too many false alarms for the people of the Sillies to realize that there was a ship in actual danger. The blame landed on Captain Thomas. Though Captain Thomas was praised for his actions after the wreck, he was not without fault. He had previously had a near miss in some fog early in his career and had expressed on multiple occasions that nothing scared him more out of the dangers of the sea than fog. People could not help but wonder, therefore, why he had only slowed his ship to half speed, considering how thick the fog was, and why only an hour before they struck the rocks. Not only that, but he had also not had anyone taking soundings, which would have quickly told him of the danger they were in. The Sillies were well known for claiming ships. Some more care would have been warranted. The publication, The Friends Intelligencer, was a little more balanced in where they placed the blame, though. The Schiller had been delayed in leaving New York, and it was therefore behind schedule. Not only that, but it was a point of pride for the line she belonged to how reliable and on schedule the Schiller always was. It did not seem likely that they would look kindly on Captain Thomas if he delayed the voyage further out of an abundance of caution. Nor did the friend's intelligencer blame the shipping company entirely. The demands that passengers made on shipping companies was to be on time with no delays, or they would stop sailing with a line. The shipping companies were responding to the demands of their passengers, as they had to if they wanted to stay in business. The fault it was concluded, was in people putting so much pressure on captains to not make the slightest delay that captains did not feel as though they could make the correct decision for safety of their ship and those on board. The Schiller had shown the heavy price of such actions, but it would not be the last. For more information, please see the Maitland Mercury from June 29, 1875, 
or see other sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. 